you are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7 p.m. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Ilya Ponomarev, member of the Executive Council of the Congress of People's Deputies and former member of Russian Parliament from 2007 to 2016. Political Periscope. What will take place next week in Warsaw? It would be a second Congress of People's Deputies, the uh, convention of the uh, Shadow Russian Parliament. Shadow Russian Parliament, uh, well, it sounds... Um, Unusual. Uh, what's the main aim of this uh, Congress and who will come? Yeah, actually to say exact, uh, all of the Russian politics actually happening in shadows. So we are vice versa, we are in the spotlight. So you would be present, many other people would be present. But uh, in fact, uh, speaking seriously, it's an alternative to the current uh, Russian authorities. Uh, it was in uh, November when uh, uh, it was 59 at that time, uh, former members of Russian parliament of different times uh, got together uh, next to Warsaw in uh, Yablonna and decided to create uh, the proper parliament. Because the current parliament in Russia was actually never elected. So formally it was elected, but uh, in fact it was uh, elected illegally uh, after the legally changed uh, constitution uh, with the participation of the occupied territory, so it was never recognized as a legitimate Russian parliament. These 59 guys, they were legitimately elected. They were recognized as a proper parliamentarians, and they want to restore the proper parliamentarism in Russia. Do you think uh, other countries will recognize this alternative parliament? No, of course they will. Uh, it takes uh, a little bit of time and I think that uh, uh, originally it would be Poland and Ukraine, the two main countries which are fighting against the aggression and which are closely watching uh, what's going on in the uh, Congress and then others would follow the suit. So far, do you have support of any country? No, but we experience very strong support from Ukraine. Uh, that's where uh, some of our people reside and uh, we help Ukraine to fight the, uh, the aggression. Many Russians are fighting right now in the front lines in, in Ukraine. But also we feel uh, uh, very strong sympathy uh, from the Polish government. And that's why uh, I think that uh, Ukraine and Poland would, as in all of this war, will uh, uh, be together in the recognition as well. You mentioned Russians fighting in Ukraine. Are there many Russians fighting there? How many units? Uh, how many people? Uh, in general, the assessment of uh, the military command of Ukraine that it's approximately 4,000 uh, Russian nationals which are fighting right now within the ranks of uh, Ukrainian army, uh, they are scattered across different units, uh, so they are not consolidated altogether in, in one place. But uh, the largest unit that exists is called Legion of Free Russia. It consists of two battalions, uh, and so significant portion of those Russians who are in Ukraine, they are within uh, this unit. Speaking of uh, Legion of Free Russia, a few weeks ago there was uh, a press conference in Warsaw about cooperation of uh, Legion of Free Russia and uh, 
so-called civic council. Do you cooperate with them also, with the civic council, with other Russian opposition organiza organizations in Europe? No, I think that you are confusing uh, because there is another uh, division which is uh, way smaller than the Legion of Free Russia, but also it's a very capable division of uh, uh, very committed fighters. It's called uh, Russian Voluntary Corps, and they are cooperating with uh, the uh, civic corps. Uh, that's uh, kind of political organization of Russians who live in, in, in Poland, uh, and probably you were referring uh, to, to, to that cooperation. Yes, but, you're, uh, you're right. Yeah, but in general, we are trying, obviously, all to keep in touch, uh, because uh, among people who are actually fighting, uh, there are no contradictions. Among politicians and within the ranks of Russian opposition, obviously, there is a lot of competition, you know, with uh, different groups and some people like each other, some people don't like each other. It's, uh, it's very bad, but yeah, it's, there, there, there are a lot of fights. But those who are in the front lines, they don't waste their time arguing with each other. They just fight. Mentioning opposition, there are such well-known names as Holorkovsky or uh, Kasparov, also Navalny, who's in prison. And you seem to be one of the emerging leaders also of opposition being recognized in the world. Do you see a prospect of cooperation to change the regime in Russia uh, between all those um, factions? Uh, look, uh, I think that we are doomed to work together at the end of the day. Some people uh, are more inclined to cooperate, some people less inclined to cooperate. Different people, they have different uh, personal objectives and personal ambitions. Uh, and that obviously is not helping, you know, when we are uh, talking about the creation of a unified force. But again, as I am saying, at the end of the day, the bottom line is who is ready to act, who is ready to fight, and who is ready just to talk. There are a lot of talkers. There are not so many doers. And that's why I do believe that at the end of the day, everybody who is doing things, they uh, would be united and we are one common enemy whom we are confronting and uh, we need to prevail and we will prevail. And I think that uh, among many names that uh, you mentioned, uh, Khodorkovsky in general is my very old friend uh, and I, I think that there are no contradictions with him uh, whatsoever. Uh, with uh, Gary, we had a lot of debates because Gary is more uh, historically was more focused on uh, supporting Russian immigration outside Russia. And I was always saying that I am very much against people leaving Russia, that I want them to stay in Russia and, and take the fight uh, there. Uh, we had the debates, but I think that right now everybody understands that we need to be on the same platform and that's where it's going to. But you yourself were forced to leave Russia. Also, many people who want to change the regime, who are against the regime, they just fled Russia, especially after uh, the first wave of uh, mobilization. How to work in such conditions where people who are against Putin, they just flee the country because they are not able to stay there? Is there enough internal centrifugal force in Russia to make the change? Look, uh, people are different. And uh, they have uh, different fears and different hopes and uh, different aspirations of life. And uh, there are people who are, I 
I wouldn't say like professional revolutionaries, but at least they are uh, political activists which committed uh, themselves uh, to political fight. And obviously, they are uh, in the spotlight of the oppression. And uh, for them to uh, escape the prison, I think, is the right thing to do because, uh, okay, uh, Alexei Navalny is in prison. He is a hero. But uh, how can he participate right now in the fight? He cannot because he is in prison and he is a hostage and he can be killed anytime uh, there in prison. And uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, it was a historic uh, and uh, heroic move of him uh, uh, to, to return to Russia. But at the end of the day, it would have been way more productive if he would stay outside and lead the fight. But it's a totally different story of uh, people who just live in Russia because they are uncomfortable there, because they have certain fears, but which are not immediately oppressed. And with uh, those people, I obviously uh, think that it would be way better if they would at least try to put up some fight. Well, then, if, you know, something bad happens and, uh, again, the security forces are coming after them, you know, they can leave. But uh, firstly, try to do something. And there are people uh, in Russia who are right now joining the partisan movement and uh, who are organizing attacks against this regime and uh, who do the actual resistance, the actual resistance movement. It's exists, it's growing, um, and uh, its numbers are increasing. Some people move into Ukraine and they join uh, the resistance to the aggression in, in Ukraine and they join the uh, Ukrainian army to fight Putinists. That's what I call the resistance but without critical mass in the nation there will be no change and do you think that it is possible to ever arrive uh, at this level you know i think that we already passed the point uh, where we uh, cared about uh, you know the masses that would uh, uh, make the change through an electoral process or something like this we are right now in the uh, dictatorship situation when uh, a lot of things are decided by professional revolutionaries and the elites who cannot sustain to keep themselves within the system that was created. So uh, to achieve the split within the elites and to apply pressure on behalf of revolutionaries, that's what, what needs to be done. Right now, a lot of, uh, unfortunately, Russian opposition people, they say, okay, so we just support Ukraine, and we can help refugees and, and whatever, different humanitarian causes. And, and that's great that people are helping. But our primary duty is to support Ukrainian army. Because that's the current main revolutionary force in Russia. That's the agent of the change. And as Ukrainian army is successful, the closer the actual revolution and the change of the regime would be in the country. Two weeks ago, you were in Brussels at the conference Imperial Russia Conquest, Genocide, Colonization, Prospects of Decolonization and the Imperialization. What do you want? Which Russia you want? Whole Russia with changed regime, with changed government or Russia split in many independent sovereign states? I want Russia where people prosper. That's uh, the ultimate goal. And how that would look like, you know, that's for the uh, people to decide. Like making uh, predictions, forecasts. I do not anticipate Russia to collapse in gazillion different small pieces. 
I don't think that's uh, feasible. I don't think that would happen. I think that we may face uh, certain of the uh, national republics to split away. I uh, think that there is a very high chance that Chechnya, for example, uh, would go, you know, maybe it would be like two, three others, you know, national republics, which may decide to leave. But I don't think that that means the collapse of the country in general. Because even if we uh, see all of the national republics go, which I think is is completely improbable, uh, then still looking on the map, you would see more or less the same Russia as, as, as you see it now, with a little bit of holes here and there. But uh, in general, it, it, it would be the same. Because at the end of the day, 80% uh, of people in Russia, they are ethnically Russians. And that's why I don't think that the disintegration is uh, a realistic uh, scenario. We can achieve deimperialization of the country and demilitarization of the country without splitting it uh, into uh, a lot of different uh, small pieces. And anyway, uh, it shouldn't be artificially pursued, not in one way or another way. Uh, our government uh, would respect the uh, desire of particular nations uh, to go away if they want to. But uh, it needs to be their decision, not a decision which would be dictated on them from somebody at the top. And uh, we need to say that uh, Russian Federation as the country would no longer exist. It would be a new Russia. And this new Russia needs to be recreated by the regions. Each region should make a conscious decision. Yes, we want to be together with others. We want to delegate certain part of our prerogatives, uh, uh, of our authority to the central level. Clearly define what this authority is. And with that, to create a new country. It's no longer like Boris Yeltsin was saying, oh, take as much sovereignty as you want to. But being a Tsar, you know, who is delegating part of his sovereignty, part of his authority to somebody there at the bottom. No, that's, um, that's not how it would work. It would be the other way around. It would be people at the bottom, ordinary people, regional people who would say, okay, take something because we want, say, common defense, common infrastructure, common education, uh, other, other stuff. You mentioned nations, other nations, but it is possible that even ethnic uh, Russians who live in other parts of Russia than this, uh, I would say, core European part of Russia, they can create some political nations, even if they are still ethnically Russians, like it happened uh, in Spanish Empire, for instance. The main difference is the metropolis is not overseas. I don't know how well you know Russia. I know it really well. I uh, traveled uh, a lot in my country. I lived in many regions myself. I can say whether I see uh, at least theoretical chances for Russians to create political nations uh, besides Moscow is Siberia, uh, maybe Urals, but definitely not Central Russia. Uh, Central Russia is probably the most conservative, the most inert. Uh, part of the uh, uh, country. It's uh, mm, uh, like Midwest in the United States, you know, something like this, you know. It's the most stable and traditional society, as you would see in, in, in the country in general, this very center. And uh, that's why I don't think that any significant initiative would come from that part. I do believe in, in very free and liberated people of Siberia, because also it's a problem that in the uh, 
center Russia, there was this slavery until 1861. It was abolished only in the second half of the 19th century, but there was no slavery in Siberia in no time. And it was always populated by uh, very uh, free and dynamic people. So that's where I think the main pressure, the wind of change would come from. Well, and many prisoners, especially from Poland, sent by Imperial Russia to, to Siberia. Many, many prisoners, you're absolutely right, but also uh, who is the most free in the autocratic state is the prisoner. And uh, you see uh, many nations uh, in on this planet which were created by these uh, prisoners uh, take example of Australia or New Zealand or even if we look at the United States of America you know that's also a significant part of the population different people who were rejected by their societies we are concluding ninth year of the war of Russia against Ukraine and we are very close to the first anniversary of uh, this full-scale invasion on 24th of February 2022. What you're doing, your revolution, is a part of this war, will be a part of this war, but we are waiting. When will it happen? Are you waiting for Ukrainian victory or are you going to act before to support this victory? Well, look, we're definitely not waiting. Uh, again, unfortunately, many of Russians do wait, but not us. We uh, want to be part of this victory. We are doing everything uh, possible to speed it up. And uh, our uh, people are spilling their blood alongside with Ukrainians uh, in, in the front lines. And we have people who already perished uh, during uh, this fight. And uh, there were people who were killed by security forces inside Russia being part of the partisans movement. And obviously we have uh, uh, also victims who died uh, fighting next to Bakhmut against Wagner and in, in, in other in other locations. It's the war. But we are definitely uh, not waiting. I don't think that uh, there is something which we uh, can do artificially to create a revolutionary in Russia. I think that the trigger for the revolution would be outside our realm, outside our reach. As I think that most likely it would be a, a major military defeat in Ukraine. Uh, but definitely we are preparing ourselves to make the final push when the situation would start to collapse. And I think that one of the important factors right now, obviously, is to consolidate um, the public opinion outside Russia, within uh, the foreign governments, so that they would be no longer afraid of the words regime change. They would recognize that the regime change in Russia is something which is imminent and uh, take part in the planning of this future Russia, which would be free, democratic and safe all. You wrote a book uh, along with Greg Stiban. I, I had a chance to uh, speak with him. Does Putin have to die? So does he? My answer is pretty obvious. We are working on this every day. What will happen with uh, Putin? What will happen with other members of this regime? What will happen with FSB or KGB? Because it's just changed name. What is the plan? Well, I, 
uh, I think that uh, speaking about Putin, it would be great if he would die as the decision of the International Tribunal and that he would be hanged as many of the Nazi war criminals uh, uh, were were hanged in, in, in 1946. Uh, but I do think that most likely he will not survive to that time because most likely uh, his own inner circle would get to him uh, before that. But others would definitely be tried, and uh, that's part of our political program in the uh, Congress of People's Deputies. We support the initiative of creating uh, international tribunal on the war crimes, uh, by the way, not only in Ukraine, but in general war crimes of uh, Putin's uh, regime that would include Chechnya and Georgia and Syria and, and, and unfortunately other places. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, we are not talking about personalities, we are talking about a system. We need to demolish the system, we need to disassemble it, we need to recreate a new one. We need to create a system where this uh, imperialism revenge would not be possible, where Russia would become an integral part of the global community and would never be able uh, to create another aggressive uh, imperialist war as what we saw recently. A bit of provocative question. Is Russia a part of European civilization? Because there are many um, roots of today's Russia, which are definitely not European, even opposed to European. Well, look, uh, definitely we are. Also, I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of fact that uh, the more you go eastwards, the more infusions you would see from other cultures and from other nations uh, in the countries which stay there. For example, in Ukraine, you would also see a lot of uh, influence and infusions, from example, from, from Turks. Uh, from Ottomans, right? Uh, in uh, Russians, you would see a lot of uh, uh, influence from uh, Mongol Tatars uh, and uh, that uh, Asian uh, civilization, but it's not the, the major influence. When uh, you look at the mirror, you see not an Asian face, you see a European face. Uh, when uh, we are talking about the religion, we are based on the same Bible. When we are talking about the culture, We, again, read the same books, uh, we go to the same movies, we listen to the same music. So, obviously, Russian civilization is the part of the uh, European uh, civilization. I would say more, it's a Christian uh, civilization, Abrahamic civilization. And uh, my uh, overarching view is that at the end of the day, it would be a global uh, uh, northern union which is based on the same uh, ethical values of renaissance and on, on this one book who is the, who is the foundation of everything and i'm not talking here about the religion so many people are atheist or agnostic whatever but uh, it's same it's still our ethical platform is formulated there and everybody who respects this ethical platform they would live in one society however i can see many differences in mentality between Russians and uh, Europeans, you have, uh, well, of course, there are part of Russians who are democratic, but uh, there are no real democratic traditions in Russia, like never in the history, except maybe Novgorod, but there was a genocide in Novgorod. It was the first Russian genocide. It will take a lot of work to change, for example, this part. No, I think that... Uh 
again, political systems and democracy being one of them is coming and going. And in different parts uh, of the history, in different times, uh, the uh, situation was totally uh, different. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, the uh, civilization which was uh, born in Kiev and Rus, uh, and that was the branches which then uh, moved uh, to the territory of modern-day Russia, twisted, like whatever. But that was an ancient uh, European uh, civilization, and it started even before uh, things started in Poland, for example. It's more ancient. And you mentioned uh, absolutely correctly uh, the tradition of Novgorod Republic which was demolished uh, and uh, assassinated, uh, massacred by Ivan the uh, Terrible. But uh, that was the place which was called Northern Athens, which was a tradition of direct democracy like it was in ancient uh, Greece. So I think that uh, traditions... A lot of traditions uh, are there. But again, the ethical platform is more important. The reformation, which uh, Russia never went through, is important. And uh, creation of the political system which would incentivize certain behavior on behalf of Russians uh, is the paramount of importance. I think that in 1993, for example, was one of the major mistakes which was made by the West altogether, which allowed Boris Yeltsin to uh, assassinate uh, the the parliament, and uh, then in 1996 uh, to falsify the elections. We actually, I think, at that time we were moving very much at peer, which was was happening in Poland. But uh, in in Poland, uh, Valencia, which was also very spontaneous uh, leader, very charismatic, but not very organized, he stepped back when Kwasniewski uh, won uh, the elections. In Russia, with the consolidated position of the West. They preferred to take the elections away from Zyuganov, who would be very much the same as Kwasniewski in Poland. So that pendulum, which was supposed to start swaying from left to right and from right to left, it never started. And that uh, pre-programmed accession of such leader as Vladimir Putin. I think that we shouldn't make this uh, mistake anymore. And that's exactly why we have created this Congress of People's Deputies, so that we, from the very beginning, we are creating a political system which is neutral from those who managed to come to power. Next week there will be the Congress of People's Deputies and there will be very important visit, visit of the uh, President of the United States, Joe Biden, to Poland. Three days long visit, uh, which is very long. Yes, uh, three what? days Congress, three days visit. So we are very thankful for American President that he took uh, into account when the Congress would take place and we really welcome him with the new Russian authorities. That would be our first official political contact. No, seriously speaking, I think that it's obviously it's not an accident that uh, President Biden is coming in these days. I think there would be a face-to-face meeting with President Zelensky. I'm guessing here it's no information, so I'm, I'm guessing I, I think it's a very high uh, probability that Biden would decide to go into Ukraine um, at the end of his visit. Uh, again, it's the anniversary of the full-scale uh, invasion. Um, I think that the important decisions would be made in terms of more uh, military support to 
Ukraine. I think that right now there are a lot of disputes uh, on the future restoration of Ukraine's economy and infrastructure. But by the way, also here, it's these issues are very closely interlinked with what would, would happen in Russia, because like no matter what, the uh, restoration of Ukraine would uh, require at least uh, 500 billion U.S., and where is this money coming from? Definitely, it would not be sponsored by uh, European or American taxpayers. I think that at least 80% of these funds would come from Russia. So, uh, to make sure that they are coming, you need to actually think what would be uh, the uh, next uh, administration in Russia and how to uh, create uh, a proper relationship uh, there. And by the way, if Russia would collapse into uh, many different pieces, then who would pay the reparations? Uh, Tatarstan would say, okay, it was not our decision, you know, come to Moscow. And Moscow doesn't have oil and gas to uh, uh, repay all those compensations. So I, I, I think that's also one of the factors uh, that we should take into account. America right now, I think, are way more shy than Poles, as I think that uh, here in Eastern Europe, Polish government, the government of the Baltic states, the government of Czech Republic, you know, many others, they do understand that uh, the future of Russia is our mutual interest. We need to decide collectively because it's a question of our joint security. It's the question of our joint prosperity. If it's it's the question of our joint stability. For Americans, it's a more theoretical uh, thing, and they are way more afraid that if they would uh, interfere at uh, this uh, moment, that Putin would threaten them with nuclear arms, with uh, with uh, whatever. So they uh, kind of very reluctant uh, to talk about the regime change in the country, but they would inevitably have an important voice there, and we need to start this discussion. And I very much hope that during Biden's uh, visit, uh, this question, maybe not in public, uh, but unofficially, would be on the agenda as well. I imagine that in case of collapse and split of Russian Federation, there would be some treaty. So maybe uh, this uh, those reparations would be also split because we cannot really say that uh, Tatarstan is not responsible as we cannot say that it's only Putin that's responsible for war. Uh, would you agree? Russians in a big part are responsible, not only Putin. No, no, I uh, fully agree with uh, uh, this sentiment, but uh, again, as a, as a, a practical politician, I would say if uh, the regions would start to split away, they would deny their uh, uh, responsibility as the state entity. Moral responsibility, that's another thing. But uh, responsibility as a state entity, it would be different. And I would uh, uh, draw your attention to one very extreme example, which uh, would highlight the situation. Okay, Tatarstan was loyal. Minikhanov, the leader of Tatarstan and Tatar elites, were loyal to Putin. Let's look at Chechnya. So, Chechnya was fighting for its independence, um, uh, and uh, right now they have uh, internationally recognized uh, uh, shadow government uh, led by Ahmed Zakayev, um, which uh, obviously were against the war from the very beginning. But at the same time, it was Kadyrov who was within Chechnya and who was for the war and was supporting uh, uh, Putin's position. And okay, so the war lost. Chechnya is independent 
okay, so what you would do, you would come to Ahmed and say, uh, Mr. Zakaev, uh, your excellency, you know, you were all the time against the war, you were even fighting, your people were dying, you know, even your people were fighting alongside with Ukrainians, but now you need to have to pay the compensation to Ukrainians instead of uh, spending money on the restoration of your nation after the period of the occupation. What would uh, Mr. Zakaev's answer be? You know, I don't think that he would be very enthusiastic in giving a, uh, a positive answer. And if he would not, then Tatars would do the same. They would, they would say, okay, guys, let's uh, be clear. Either you recognize that we were occupied by uh, Russian Federation, and in this situation, we have no responsibility on the decisions of the Russian Federation, and whatever reparations or whatever, you know, you go to Moscow and, and talk to them, don't come to us, we, we have nothing to do with it, or uh, they are part of Russia. Uh, in, in this regards. And before everything is compensated and everything, you know, they are staying part of Russia. It's one way or another. It, it cannot be both. And if we look at the, uh, where the major national wealth of Russia is, you would see it's uh, Western Siberia, which is uh, national districts. It would be in the same uh, Tatarstan and, uh, and Bashkiria. So it would be rather small exclusions when it would be Russian territories where oil and gas and whatever is. Let's get back to to the US. Do you have any contacts, any support from there? Oh, obviously, we have a lot of contacts. I, I, I mean, like, official level. We have a lot of contacts on the official level, very much so. The question is, when you're saying about support, no, United States uh, did not uh, make a decision that they want to be part of the regime change in Russia. And that's exactly what I was uh, saying about. There is a faction in uh, their administration uh, which understands that they need to be and that they need to pay attention and that they need to think about the future of the continent. Uh, and it's a joint cause. But currently, the majority of the administration are simply afraid. They're afraid of Putin, they're afraid of nuclear arms, they're afraid of everything, and their position is pretty simple, that uh, this is the uh, war which has been led by Ukraine, let Ukrainians think about it. We will support the Ukrainian decision, but uh, Ukraine should lead, and uh, that's their position, you know. I think that maybe it's the correct approach. I think it should be more proactive in this regards. Okay, they would lead, but at least you need to discuss what's happening. And uh, I already read numerous articles in the American and in British press uh, where people are openly saying, okay, we are paying for this war, so we need to have a say in the outcome of the war. But uh, they're still nowhere close to uh, a modern-day Tehran or uh, Yalta, you know, where uh, world leaders uh, sit together and decide the future of uh, Germany. But I think we will be coming to this point uh, at one day or another. To end, what will be the outcome of this war? And the outcome of this war would be a free and independent Ukraine. Uh, I think it would be a free and democratic Russia. I think it would be a more stable peace. And I think that in the long run, everybody would benefit from the outcome. We just need to stay firm. We don't need to trade our principles. We need to be committed and we need to be united. And we will prevail. So, no another Minsk agreement. 
No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it's feasible. If you if you uh, read the recent polls uh, in uh, Ukraine, there was one prepared specifically for Munich Security Conference was published a couple of days ago. Uh, people were asked, okay, if Putin would apply nuclear arms, would you still fight? And 89% were saying, yes, we will, even after the nuclear arms. And uh, also uh, saying, would you compromise um, on uh, the borders of 2021? So when uh, part of Donbass and Crimea are still occupied, but like uh, Putin uh, is getting out of all the territories that were captured in 2022, and 85% were saying, no, we will not compromise. So uh, Ukrainian society is absolutely committed despite all the hardships, power outages, uh, human losses, uh, uh, missiles, bombs, and whatever, we are committed. Uh, and I'm saying here we, because we are free Russians and, and Ukrainians, we stand together. And again, we will prevail. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 